Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you're a guest with us today. We have Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have God's Word in your hand. As you turn there, let me review. Over the last several months, we have studied Matthew's Gospel verse by verse. And just so you know, we teach in this expository fashion because we believe that when you understand God's word verse by verse, you will experience him day by day. And not only that, but you'll be compelled to share the gospel out of love for Jesus, thus fulfilling the Great Commission. So Matthew opened up his gospel in in chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus Christ thus proving that Jesus comes from the lineage, the the heritage of Abraham and King David. Matthew then moved to the virginal conception of Jesus Christ, thus proving that Jesus was not stained with sin uh, by having a human father like you and me. And then in Matthew uh, chapter 2, we learned about the arrival of the Magi who came to worship Jesus. And then on the other hand, we saw how King Herod Uh, wanting to kill Jesus. We read about the obedience of Joseph and his leadership in protecting Jesus and Mary by by taking them to live in Egypt uh, for a short period of time. Matthew also taught us about King Herod's rage in murdering dozens of baby boys in Bethlehem because of that. The Holy Spirit taught us how Joseph led his family back to Israel and all the trials and all the hardships that went with that return trip home. And then in Matthew chapter 3, we fast forward 30 years, and we meet this character, a new character. His name's John, and he's a baptizer. And we learned of John's message, too. We spent two weeks on this, that his message, his sermon, it was repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And all of that prepares us for the launch of Jesus' ministry. Brings us to today's text, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase there, the baptism of Jesus Christ, that should sound a little strange to us, I think. And it sounds strange because we learned last week that John's baptism is a baptism for repentance. In other words, it's a baptism specifically for sinners. To prepare sinners for the Savior himself. So the obvious question becomes, well, wait a second, if Jesus is sinless, and he is, why does he go to a sinner, John the baptizer, to be baptized for sins that he hasn't committed and he'll never commit? Now, I think that's a wonderful question, and I think we should find out the answer to that question today. So uh, if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, Well, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus answered him, Well, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you. Please have a seat. Let's take a deeper look here at Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So right from the very start here, we have a purpose statement, don't we? Jesus made this visit to John for the sole purpose of being baptized. Last Sunday, we learned a lot about John the baptizer and his ministry. We saw that his ministry was so large. We saw that it had so much activity going on that the Sanhedrin, they sent Pharisees and Sadducees to investigate the whole thing. So we come to, we come to verse 13 today, and Matthew writes this. He says, then. So at the height of John's ministry, then Jesus came. So just as the Magi made an official arrival to worship Jesus as a child, Jesus himself officially arrives at the Jordan. Now, it's possible that Jesus may have walked up to 60 miles, 6-0, to get there from Galilee to where John was baptizing in the Jordan River. Now, we don't know exactly where John was baptizing. Uh, The Jordan River, it's it's a long river. It runs between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, the, the main part of it. So it's a large area. However, we do have a clue here in John's gospel uh, where it may be. John chapter 1, verse 28, John writes this. He says, all of this happened in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So this town of Bethany, it's also known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, this is not the same hometown as Martha, Mary, and and Lazarus in in John chapter 11. I, I know it's a little confusing. Their hometown is just east of Jerusalem. It's just a few miles away. But, but John is baptizing in a different area called Bethany. Many scholars believe that this area where John was baptizing was about five miles north of the Dead Sea, and it was close to the city of Jericho. Now, this is where it really it gets fun. It's really interesting here because if John is baptizing sinners in preparation for the Messiah at this location near Jericho, it may be the same area that the Israelites took their first steps toward entering the promised land in Joshua chapter 1. Isn't that cool? I love that. Now, we don't know that for sure. Um, 
But what we do know is that Jesus came to be baptized. So Jesus did not come to observe or criticize what John was doing, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees from last week. Now, I want you to think about the humility of Jesus here. The humility of Jesus being baptized. First of all, we've got Jesus walking up to 60 miles just to get to the location. Secondly, there are dozens, if not hundreds of people in line to be baptized by John. So we've got, think of this, we have the sinless son of God. He gets in line for baptism like every other sinner. Now, can you guys picture that? Jesus arrives and he sees the back of the line. He gets in the back of the line. He's not going to cut in line. Nobody knows who he is. So picture this. He gets, he gets in, in the water. He gets in line. And the person next to him or in front of him turns around and says, well, shalom. And Jesus says, shalom, shalom. Big smile on Jesus' face. The man continues. He talks to Jesus. He says, you know, this is pretty exciting, isn't it? The first prophet in 400 years. Can you believe this? And Jesus replies, he said, exciting indeed. (laughs) The man sticks his hand out. He introduces himself, and Jesus says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And man, it's a pleasure to meet you. Meanwhile, this man is oblivious, just like everybody else standing around in this line like cattle as they're, they're standing next to the one who spoke the, the, the whole cosmos into existence, right? Now, obviously, I'm reading between the lines here. So, but does everybody get the picture of the humility of where Jesus is and what he's doing at this moment? Finally, it's Jesus' turn to be baptized. Who knows how long they've been waiting in this line, you know. John recognizes Jesus. Now, remember, they're cousins. It's possible that they played together as children. We know that John's mother, Elizabeth, called Jesus Lord. John's father, Zechariah, he had a conversation with the angel Gabriel. So believe me, John knows exactly who Jesus is. Scripture confirms that. We'll see that here in a minute. Verse 14, but John tried to stop him, saying, wait a second, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me. Right. So John finds himself in a pickle, doesn't he? Now, if you remember from last week, John didn't baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were unrepentant. And now, John doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he's too holy. That's quite the dilemma. The, the picture here that, uh, that we see is that John and, and Jesus, they had a longer conversation than what Matthew penned. This conversation went on. And, and during this conversation, there was a continuing effort by John to stop this whole thing. So in other words, this verse could be read, John kept trying to prevent Jesus from being baptized. John didn't directly contradict Jesus like Peter did in Matthew 16, but John thought that somehow and in some way that he was just misunderstanding what Jesus was saying. I mean, put yourself in John's shoes. I mean, wouldn't you think that Jesus could not possibly mean what he seemed to be saying? 
So John is saying, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. I'm the one who is the sinner. You're not. Notice here how John, John's attempt to stop Jesus from being baptized in itself is proof of Jesus' sinlessness. And that brings us to key point number one. Jesus, who had no sin, got in line to be baptized with those who had no righteousness. Jesus, who has no sin, he gets in line to be baptized with those who have no righteousness. So Jesus' ministry starts off with a divine scandal here. In John's gospel, the apostle John, he writes this, John 1, 29. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, notice, guys, John didn't say, look, that's the Alpha and the Omega. He didn't say, look, guys, that's that right there, that's the King of Kings. He didn't say, that's the Lord of Lords. No, he said, that's the Lamb of of God. So John is referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The lambs that were slain on the day of atonement, they had to be perfect. They had to be flawless lambs. The day of atonement, it's a feast day for Israel. It's it's one day a year. Israel fasted. They dealt with their sin through a temporary animal sacrifice. The lambs that they sacrificed could not have any defects. It had to be what was called a lamb without blemish. A lamb without deformities, or a lamb with deformities, could not serve as an atonement, a temporary payment for sins. So John recognizes Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, we learned last Sunday that John's baptism was for confession of sin and it was for repentance. However, Jesus has no need to confess sins. Jesus has no need of repentance. Remember when Jesus asked the Jews in in John 8, he said, who among you can convict me of sin? So do you all see John's dilemma? Jesus doesn't need to be saved from anything. And yet John has the Lamb of God standing right in front of him, waiting to be baptized. Awkward. Just a little awkward. Brings us to key point number two. Jesus doesn't need saving because he's the Savior. Jesus doesn't need saving because he's the Savior. Jesus offers forgiveness. He doesn't need forgiveness. So John and Jesus are talking this whole thing out. They're holding up the line, right? And in verse 15, Jesus answered him. He said, all right, John, listen. You got to allow this for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' response is one of incomprehensible humility. Jesus is saying this. John, I know this it doesn't make any sense. I get that, but I I don't have time to give you like this theological dissertation on why you must baptize me. Jesus looks into John's eyes and he says, look, man, we, we have to fulfill all righteousness. I need you to trust me on this. 
to fulfill all righteousness, that phrase there, it means that Jesus is going to be perfectly obedient to God the Father. Jesus is going to make all things right with the Father on behalf of mankind. So one of the many things that Jesus did was fulfill every Old Testament law perfectly. He dotted every I, he crossed every T. In fact, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 17. He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, here we go, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So in other words, what Adam failed to do, Jesus accomplished. That's why Jesus is sometimes called the the new Adam or the second Adam. Because Jesus came as the representation of Israel. For Jesus to fulfill his mission, he had to obey every law that God placed upon Israel. So even though Jesus had no sin, his entire ministry was vicarious. Jesus, you think of it this way, Jesus is the substitute for every man and every woman in Israel. And when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus was murdered on a cross, not for his sin, but for the sins of the people by his own people. So back to verse 15, Jesus says, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, John, you're right. I should be baptizing you, but even though this doesn't make any sense right now, it's going to make sense later. So the question becomes, now wait a second, how could Jesus' baptism add anything to the perfect righteousness of Jesus? In other words, what compelled Jesus to be baptized? So let's think this through here. There are three common views I want to share with you. First, some people think that that Christ's baptism points to the purity laws of Israel. Last Sunday, we we discussed how John's baptism was just a bit out of the ordinary, you know, for the Jews. Uh, The Jews had their heritage. They are God's chosen people. They didn't need to be baptized because they had the law. The Jews, however, they did baptize proselytes into Judaism. But Jews themselves, they were not baptized. However, Jews did have to be ritually pure before they entered the temple. Purity could be lost in many, many ways. So the primary way of restoring a Jew's purity was what's called uh, through a mikvah. And that's, that's a pool of water. And it kind of sort of looks like a baptism, but it's not. Judaism, is, it's a very symbolic religion. And, and the mikvah in, in Judaism, is, it's a symbol of identification, So even though Jesus is the sinless son of God, Jesus chooses to identify himself with sinners within John the baptizer's message. Now that sounds good, sounds really good, but that's not what the text says. Secondly, some say that Jesus' baptism is the symbolic cleansing of a priest before the start of a ministry. So in other words, Jesus takes a mikvah, as a public testimony that is the start of his public uh, ministry. Once again, that sounds really good, great symbolism there, but that's not what the text says. Jesus says he didn't take a mikvah, he was baptized. 
Thirdly, some theologians say that the nation of Israel needs to repent of its sins, and Jesus is part of that nation. So what Jesus is doing here is he's providing the example with his baptism. So we see a biblical basis for, for corporate, a corporate confession of sin, but once again, there's nothing in Scripture that says any of that. So if we look closely here at verse 15 again, Jesus tells us exactly why he's being baptized. Look at this. He says, because this, this baptism, is the way for us, Jesus and John, to fulfill all righteousness. He's being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So the key here is that Jesus came into the world to identify with mankind. And to identify with mankind, it means that Jesus must identify with sin. Because mankind and sin... That's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So by receiving John's baptism, Jesus identifies with mankind rather than distancing himself from us. In other words, Jesus could not fulfill righteousness for mankind if he didn't identify with mankind's sin. Now, would it surprise you that this identification was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. He, that's Jesus, he was counted among the rebels, he bore the sins of many, and he interceded for the rebels. That word interceded there, it means he pleaded to the Father. Jesus made peace with the Father. Jesus acted between the Father and the mankind for reconciliation. In other words, it was predicted that Jesus, number one, he would identify himself with sinners, and number two, he would be a substitute on our behalf. So after John has this extended conversation with Jesus, verse 15, then John allowed him to be baptized. Jesus' baptism was the, the first act of his ministry, and within the very first act of his obedience, we see something divine take place. Look at this. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. First, notice the mode of baptism here. The text says that Jesus went up from the water. So to come up from the water, it means that Jesus first had to go down into the water, right? So Jesus was immersed. He was dipped. That word baptized there, it comes from baptizo. Uh, it simply means to dip. That's what baptism means. And, and the reason the mode of baptism is, is important at this point at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, is because it reflects the gospel. It reflects the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So if you, when you see baptism, someone's sitting up straight in the pool of water, right? We baptize people right there. Somebody said, you know, that thing looks like a coffin right there. And in a way, it kind of is, right? Because when, we, when someone is baptized, they're sitting up in the water. That's the life of the person. When we baptize them, we dip them into the water. So that's the death. We bring them back up out of the water, and that represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the mode of baptism, very important right from the very beginning here. 
Secondly, in verse 16, we see that the heavens opened. The heavens opened. Now, if you have the ESV or the NASB, verse 16 says this, Behold, the heavens opened. I love that. So in other words, Matthew is saying, pay attention here. That's what the word behold means. It means pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. This is really, really important. The heavens opening, it's not some kind of uh, sentimental, private, emotional thing going on in the heart of Jesus. You know, this was not an emotional thing. It was a miracle for everyone to witness. Now, why? Well, what? What did they see when the heavens opened? Scripture doesn't say, doesn't give us those details, but it seems that there is a spiritual layer that blocks us from seeing into heaven. Scripture does share a couple of experiences when God chooses to remove that spiritual barrier from from people's eyes. Uh, If you remember in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw the heavens opened and he saw four living creatures, he saw a chariot with wheels that had more wheels that had more wheels in it, right? Can you imagine him trying to explain that to somebody? Guys, I saw the the, the heavens open that I saw wheels within wheels within wheels. And I would just imagine his friends going, rock on, Zeke, man, that's okay. Have at it, man. Just before Stephen died in Acts chapter 7, he saw the heavens open. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. John the Apostle, he writes about several heavenly visions in the book of of Revelation. The Apostle Paul, he had the experience of being caught up into the third heaven. That incident was so wonderful and amazing. Paul said this. He said, you know, it's inexpressible. I've got no words for it. I can't tell you what I saw. It was so glorious. It was so awesome. So we don't know what everybody saw here at at Jesus' baptism, but what we do know is this, verse 16, that he, that's John, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him, on Jesus. Now, notice here how the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. It's not an actual physical dove. It's like a dove. Now, why a dove? A couple reasons. Uh, First, the Jews connected a dove with the Holy Spirit in the the first century, and here's why. Genesis 1-2, it goes all the way back to the creation story. Second verse in all of Scripture. Now, the earth was formless. It was empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I love this. That, that Hebrew verb there, hover, it's the same word to describe a bird fluttering its wings. So the picture here is that the Holy Spirit identifies and empowers Jesus as the one who's going to bring a new creation during this baptism. So just as Jesus was involved in the creation... We see Jesus involved in redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away, the new has come. And Jesus is doing a new work. He's creating something new. Secondly, the Jews recognized a dove as the most common sacrifice 
in the first century for a sin offering. So we see the picture of a sacrifice here with the Holy Spirit like a dove. So we have the background of why the Holy Spirit is like a dove, but why did the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus in the first place? Now, this is really cool. When Jesus became a man, Jesus did not lose his divinity. Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that he is divine. Jesus is also the Son of Man, meaning that he is human. So theologically, we call this the hypostatic union. It's the union of of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. It's the hypostasis of Jesus Christ. So although Jesus stepped down from heaven to become a human being, Jesus was still fully divine in every way. Jesus was not a man who became God. That's heresy. Because Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus has always existed. I know it's hard to wrap our brains around that, isn't it? So in his deity, Jesus needs nothing. But in his humanity, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit just like we do. Remember now, Jesus laid aside his divine abilities while on earth. We know this. The Apostle Paul writes it in Philippians 2.5. He says, we are to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So in other words, Jesus did not perform miracles on his own behalf. Jesus never pulled out his divinity card to show off to people, right? Let me give you a couple examples. Matthew 12, 28. Jesus says this. He says, if, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit to drive out those demons through him. Jesus didn't preach on his own either. John three thirty four. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. As a human being, Jesus depended solely on the, human, uh, on the Holy Spirit to speak through him. And here's the cool part. Just like us. Or at least just like we are. We are to be that dependent on the Holy Spirit. Let me give you another example. In the book of Acts Chapter 10, verse 37. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who who were under the tyranny of the devil. Why? Because God was with him. Now, you and I, we're not going to walk around healing the lame and and casting out demons like Jesus, right? That apostolic dispensation, that's over. But the point here is that we have the same Holy Spirit leading and, and directing and guiding our lives just as Jesus did in his humanity. And that's what we see here in verse 16. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. So we see the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus for ministry. And guess what? 
This anointing was also prophesied in the Old Testament. Check this out. Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. That me there is Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. Isaiah 11.2. Look at this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's Jesus. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So Jesus is being ordained for the redemption of mankind by the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus is being commissioned here, look, look what happens next in verse 17. A voice from heaven said this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit ordains Jesus and we have God the Father confirming the ordination. Any Jew who knew the Old Testament would immediately recognize these words from the Father. That first part of the sentence there, you are my son, it comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. The psalmist writes, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Notice also how we have all three members of the Trinity involved in Jesus' baptism. So we have the Holy Spirit who anoints the Son. We have the Father who speaks to the people with his confirmation. So therefore, the Son is anointed. He is confirmed for ministry. So just as all three members of the Trinity were present in creation, we also have all three members present at the beginning of mankind's redemption. Verse 17, the Father says, this is my beloved son. Beloved. You've heard the word agape, agape love. This is agape dos. It signifies a deep, rich, profound relationship. God the Father loves God the Son. And we know that, right? We know that. The most famous Bible verse also says this, John three sixteen, For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God loves the world as well. Agape. Jesus is the Father's beloved though. Agape dos. So Jesus is, is the Father's... He's the, 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 the special anointing is upon the Son. God the Father loves Jesus more than everything else and everyone else. Think about your own children. You may love kids, but you have to admit that you love your own children more than other kids, right? Verse 17, God the Father says, with whom I am well pleased. The second part of that sentence comes from Isaiah 42.1. This is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. So only in God's son could the father ever fully be well pleased. Why is that? Well, it's as if God the father 
examine the life of Jesus. You know, that 30 years of Jesus working in complete and total obscurity. That, that time between Matthew chapter 3, verse 12 and verse 13. 30 years there. Only one story about Jesus written in that time frame. So think about this. God the Father examined every thought of Jesus. He examined every word. He heard every word. He scrutinized every motive. Oh, my goodness. He scrutinized every agenda. And after 30 years, he found Jesus to be perfect and without blemish. God the Father loves the Son and is well pleased because Jesus is the only one who is capable of offering himself as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. There is no higher love possible than God the Father's love for his Son. And here's the most amazing thing that anyone could ever hear. Because God the Father loves his Son with an agape dos kind of love, and because God the Father finds no imperfection in his Son, God the Father also finds no imperfection. No fault, no defect in those who confess Jesus as Lord with their mouth and believe that Jesus was raised in their hearts from the dead. Once again, Jesus lived a vicarious life, right? So that involves identifying with us as sinners. He's a substitute as well. And here's what I want us to think about as we finish. Identification and substitution. The world has a very different definition of identification. The world says that I, can that I can establish my own identity. If I choose to identify as tall, dark, and handsome, I can do that. But you guys know that's not true. I'm short <laughs> and I'm pale as a ghost, and I'm bald. <laughs> but see, the world says that you can identify as someone or something that you're not, all for personal gain or for worldly applause. But that's not how Jesus identifies with sinners. Jesus, his identification cost him his life. So it's God who tells us who we are. It's not the other way around. Do you, do, you, do you guys see the rebellion in that, by the way? Me telling God who I am? See, it's God who sets the standard for truth. We, we don't make up our own version of truth. It's God who tells us who God is and how we are to know him through Scripture. We, by the way, generally, we're, we're either to the left or to the right. We're not in the center usually, right? Center being Scripture. And it's our job to adjust our lives to the center. And it's in baptism that we are identified with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And that brings us to key point number three. Jesus' death becomes our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. How do we know this? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ is it's no longer I who live, 
but Christ is living in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in other words, Jesus identified with sinners for this reason. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that's God, God the Father, he made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin. Or to be, it's better rendered to be a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that word again, righteousness, right? Today's text with the baptism, it fulfills all righteousness. So identification and substitution is the heart of the gospel message. That's why the gospel is called good news. Romans 5.8, God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that proof comes with Jesus' identification. Jesus was murdered as a criminal, and he was crucified between two criminals. He identified with sinners. John 19.30, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So what's the, what's the result of Jesus finishing his work here on the cross? Well, the result, we can find that in Hebrews 4.14. Since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, right? He, he came from heaven to become man, and now he's back in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus understands your sin. He understands your struggle. All of that was placed on him at the cross, dear friends. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So, dear friends... If Jesus Christ is not your substitute, then Jesus doesn't identify with you. You're not one of his because you're still of the world. And this means that you must come to God the Father apart from the grace of God. In other words, you will one day stand in front of Jesus, not as a savior, but as a judge. And instead of allowing Jesus to be your substitute, you're going to come to him before a holy God on your own merit with no good deeds because you have not repented and you're not converted. The price for your sinfulness, the price for your pride is an eternal hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. That is your destiny, and this is your best life now if Jesus is not your Savior. But dear friends, it doesn't have to be that way. All you have to do is confess that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Dear friend, I pray that you would do some business with God today. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for teaching us the importance of the baptism of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for teaching us about 
the identification and the substitution. Father, for those of us who have heard the gospel message time and time again, I pray that it never becomes dull. I pray, Lord God, that we repent of that. There is a mighty work to do in the backyard here in the Verde Valley. And that work is something that's already been done, and and it's just amazing to me that you would allow us to be a part of it. So, Father, I pray that we do do get this this good news, this gospel message, this, this idea of substitution and identification into our bones, and it's out of love that we would go and and proclaim this message this week to our friends and to our neighbors and, and to those who have spiritual questions. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.